Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I'm reminded of a survey that I recently heard of in which people were asked to list their greatest fears. The majority of those surveyed listed giving a talk as that which they feared most. The second most feared activity was that of dying. I suppose that one could deduce from this study that most people would rather die than give a talk. Preparation for this devotional has been a most interesting experience. It has given me the chance to more closely focus on an area that is becoming increasingly important to me. I seek for your faith and prayers that what I have prepared will be presented clearly and that you will find value in its content. During my 26 years as a faculty member at the BYU, I have discovered that age is a relative matter. If you continue to work and absorb the beauty in the world about you, you find that age does not necessarily mean getting old. Rather, it refers to a continual process of developing and maturing. In my case, it refers to an ever-increasing desire to fill my mind with things that will make life more productive and meaningful. Age has taught me the importance of using all that is virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy to create a shield in my mind that can ward off temptation in assisting me in drawing closer to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Today I want to share with you some reasons, as well as some examples of, for using two of the areas of the fine arts, visual representation and music, to give us increased ability to make our lives more productive, especially as they relate to our purpose here, that of becoming like Christ. There is no profession more important than that of teaching. At any level, it is a great responsibility. Good teachers help shape and give direction to the lives of their students. One of the principles that plays such an important part in the process of teaching is that there are some things teachers can give to students rather easily and some things they cannot give except as the students are willing to reach out, grab and take hold of an object or thought, thus beginning to pay the price for making it an integral part of their lives. It is a wonderfully rewarding experience to see the light go on in a student's eyes after their having grappled and come to grips with a problem or a new experience. On the other hand, it is a disheartening experience to see a student who, when exposed to that which is of good report or praiseworthy, rejects it because, to paraphrase the American composer Charles Ives, they seek only that which allows the ears to lie back in an easy chair. There are few things that require concentration or extra effort that are comfortable or convenient. A person who does not want to put themselves out or seek for that which is of good report or praiseworthy can usually find an excuse for not participating in the experience. Self-improvement 
is seldom within easy reach. Learning requires active effort. Seeking that which is virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy requires that one look for, search for, try to discover, inquire after, or try to acquire. It means that one is willing to carefully and thoroughly engage themselves in the process of finding and discovering. Lehi, in describing his dream, speaks of a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. The fruit of the tree was most sweet above all that he had ever tasted. It was white to exceed whiteness that he had ever seen. After partaking of the wonderful fruit, his soul was filled with exceedingly great joy. Lehi also speaks of a rod of iron and of a path extending along the bank of a river. The rod assists one in staying on the path. Both lead to the tree containing the white, most sweet and wonderful fruit. During the course of Lehi's narration, it becomes obvious that reaching the tree is no easy task. It is not simple or convenient. One cannot progress down the path if they simply allow themselves to lie back in an easy chair. At no point in Lehi's dream was anyone forced to take hold of the rod and proceed down the path. Those desiring to partake of the fruit had to be willing to do so of their own volition. They had to be willing to exert all of their might, mind, and strength in seeking that which would give greater gripping power. Being able to continually hold on requires that we fully experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that we completely understand and internalize our obligations and responsibilities. As we thoroughly engage ourselves in making that which is virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy a part of our lives, our grip on the rod becomes stronger. And when the floods descend and the midst of darkness surround us, we are able to withstand the temptation to release our grip and leave the path. We, were, we are able to hang on until we can partake of that which is the greatest of all the gifts of God even eternal life. Each member of Christ's church has the responsibility to find that which allows them to have a sturdy grip on the rod. Elder Dallin H. Oaks admonished, We have the responsibility of filling our minds with the things of the Spirit, things that teach of God or promote that which is pleasing to Him, things that are virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. We need to seek wisdom and understanding. We need to seek learning, even by faith and by study. We need to fill our minds with thoughts and expressions, with pictures and music that can be judged as worthy to draw one closer to the Spirit of Christ. They are, wrote Elder Hugh B. Brown, the daily bread of the soul, the best friends a man can have, they teach us the best way of living and the noblest way of thinking. Several individuals from this pulpit and other pulpits have told us to fill our minds with good music. They have suggested that we have a favorite hymn that we can sing in our minds when the mists of darkness surround us. Others have suggested that we memorize poems or scriptures for the same purpose. 
Some have used works of art as, as contemplative material to help overcome the influence of evil. All of these interventions can help combat evil's influence. They focus our minds. They enrich us with wisdom. We need to start filling our minds with good things. And as Paul said in his letter to the Thessalonians, hold fast to that which is good. Dr. Arthur Henry King, an emeritus member of our faculty, said in a, fac in a forum lecture in June of 1970, we have a message for the world. That message springs from our faith. In order to give that message, we need to select from the world the instruments which will help us to convey our faith. And at the same time, we need to study the world to understand with what we, with what we have to deal. But we need to study the world not from the point of view of the world, because that is wrong, but from the point of view of the center which we have in the church and in ourselves, that enables us to judge clearly and firmly. One of the major tasks of our education surely is to apply the Church's standards to the great artistic works of all time in order that we may judge them in their approaches to the relationship of God and man. Dr. King concludes, The Holy Spirit does not do everything for us. It is there to guide us when we are unable to do what is needed for ourselves. It is up to us in our church to educate ourselves to the point at which we can experience the best of art. Experience the best of art. Being in the world but not of the world. We are different. Our view of life must be from the standpoint of the gospel and its teachings. We indeed have a message for the world, a message that we must internalize. It must become a part of our being. We must inwardly have an understanding of what it means to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. We must be convinced and certain of the message as given by the Savior. To experience the best of art, we must understand that all things that are good cometh of God and that the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Elder Richard L. Evans writes, We are the sum of all our actions and attitudes and utterances, of all things stored in our body, mind, and memory. Thus, we should be continually filling our bodies, minds, and memories with that which is virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy. Several years ago, one of our older sons, who was five or six years old at the time, was sitting on the sofa in our front room. It was summer, midday, and the sun was shedding its light through the large front windows. He was taking a few moments out from his play to read and rest. As I looked at him with the open book resting on his lap, he seemed to be sleeping, thinking that it would be more comfortable for him to lie down. I went over to him and began putting my arms under his legs and around his back. As I touched him, he suddenly moved and said, What you doing, Dad? In response, I said that I was simply trying to make him more comfortable. 
In his most direct way, he said that he wasn't tired and didn't want to take a nap. What do you mean, son? Your eyes were closed and you seemed to be sleeping. I wasn't sleeping, Dad, he said. I was watching it rain. Watching it rain. The book was about rain. This young boy had taken his life experiences with rain and combined them with that, with that which he had been reading. And inside his mind, despite the fact that the sun was shining brightly through the window, he was watching it rain. He had internalized the message. It had become a part of him, so much so that when he wanted, he could recall and visualize in his mind the experience of rain. During a study abroad experience in London in 91, we visited many of the great museums of Europe. It was then that a slide collection of paintings depicting events in the life of the Savior was started. Many of these paintings have made it possible for me to visualize the written word. They have given my imagination the opportunity to see how certain scenes might have been. They are snapshots of a moment in time suspended forever as seen through the artist's eyes. They have, to quote Elder Boyd K. Packer, a sense of spiritual propriety. Just as our young son was watching it rain after reading a book, so works of art can give us the opportunity to visualize particular events in the life of the Savior with greater depth and understanding. Works of art literally can bring passages of scripture to life. The following paintings were not originally intended for display in the Marriott Center setting. Rather, they were intended for settings in which those viewing them could stand close to them and bask in their visual reality. Some were intended for monasteries or chapels. Some were intended for small rooms in which individuals gathered and worshipped and contemplated. Others were intended for personal or private display. All, however, were painted with the idea of drawing the viewer into a scene and giving him or her more empathy. All were designed to assist in giving greater individual internalization to the subject being portrayed. Early one morning, Jesus came into the temple. John writes that all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. In the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? That is the moment that Bruce Hicks and Smith of our faculty was attempting to pictorialize in his Taken in Adultery. He writes, The painting implicitly refers to the evilness and insensitivity of the accusers. Yet for me, the painting primarily reaffirms faith in repentance and strengthens my will to repent. It illustrates perfectly the understanding of our Savior and confirms his magnanimous persuasion. Professor Smith has purposely taken great pains not to paint the scene in a realistic style. Rather, the viewer is required to engage the imagination, 
The evilness and insensitivity of the accusers is there, but it is not on a platter. You have to put your mind to work. You have to reach out and discover what is being pictorialized by the artist. For some time taken into adultery, hung in the office of Dean Bruce Christensen. As you would walk by his open door, it was in full view. It was difficult for me to go past his office without contemplating the painting and thinking of the Savior's response to the scribes and Pharisees. He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. His admonition to the woman, go and sin no more, and her response in that she glorified God from that hour and believed on his name have always given me cause for hoping and knowing the direction I should go as I sin and go through the repentance process. Closing your eyes, pondering on the scriptural passage, allowing yourself to visualize the moment through the eyes of the artist, all will allow you the opportunity to more fully understand, envision, and internalize the lessons being taught by the Savior. You will indeed be watching it rain. In 1627, Francisco de Zerberon painted the crucifixion for the monastery of San Pablo Real in Seville, Spain, not intended to be an work, a work that allows the ears to lie back in an easy chair. Crucifixion gives the viewer a realistic rendering of Zerberon's concept of the horror of crucifixion, of nails being driven into hands and feet, of a spear being thrust into the Savior's side, of the agony of death. Crucifixion was not a pretty sight, but one that we must allow to become part of our visualization process. It happened. Christ hung on the cross, but there was a purpose. Eliza R. Snow wrote, Behold the great Redeemer die. A broken law to satisfy, he dies a sacrifice for sin, that man may live and glory win. While guilty men his pains deride, they pierce his hands and feet and side, and with insulting scoffs and scorns they crown his head with plaited thorns. Although in agony he hung, no murmuring word escaped his tongue, his high commission to fulfill. He magnified his Father's will. He died, and at the awful sight the sun in shame withdrew its light, earth trembled, and all nature sighed in dread response. A God has died. A snapshot of a moment in time. Can you see the sun withdraw its light? The earth tremble, and all nature sigh? Can you watch it rain, thunder, and lightning as the Son of God is crucified. Following his resurrection, Christ appeared to his disciples. Thomas, one of their number, was not with them. Following the appearance, the disciples said to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, while Thomas and the other disciples were together in a room, the doors being shut, Jesus suddenly stood in their midst and said unto them, 
peace be unto you. He then turned to Thomas and said, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. The Italian painter Caravaggio painted Doubting Thomas in 1604. The painting allows us to envision the Savior's conversation with Thomas. It makes it possible for us to focus our minds on the event and more fully internalize the Savior's admonition, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. This same Doubting Thomas scene was painted a short while later by another Italian known as Giacchino. Neither of these two artists intended their paintings to depict events in another part of the world. They can, however, give us opportunity to better envision and incorporate within ourselves the resurrected Savior's appearance to the Nephites. You remember the appearance after the sun withdrew its light in shame, the earth trembled, and all nature sighed, when the Savior said, Arise and come forth unto me that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the print of the nails in my hands and in my feet. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the nails in the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do going forth one by one until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes, and did feel with their hands, and did know of a surety that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. Another snapshot frozen in time. Can you envision yourself being there? Can you see the Savior asking them to arise? Can you envision placing your hands into his side and feeling the prints of the nails in his hands? Can you watch it rain? Minerva Teichert, who was born in Ogden, Utah in 1888, studied art at the Chicago Art Institute from 1908 to 1912. In the 1930s, during her most productive period, her first propriety was to paint the Mormon story. For her, painting was a means of telling people about her faith in Christ and in his church, restored to the earth by the prophet Joseph Smith. The painting of the father and son's appearance to Joseph currently hangs in the Joseph Smith building on our campus. Unfortunately, it hangs in an area that is not altogether conducive to contemplation on a personal level. But upon viewing the painting, one ought to have brought to mind the experience that this painting is attempting to pictorialize exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me. And at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son. Hear him. In your quiet moments, can you envision the power of the enemy?
Can you envision the feeling of despair of the prophet? Can you see the pillar of light descend upon him? Can you see the brightness and glory of the heavenly personages as they appeared unto him? Can you watch it rain? Music is one of the most influential and powerful of the arts. It can draw us closer to the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Ghost, or it can draw us closer to that Spirit which causes us to do and say those things which are not of God. It has the power to persuade mankind to do evil, or it can assist us, assist us to more deeply believe in Christ. It can indeed be a great gift for good. It is our responsibility to internalize the kind of music that will assist us in becoming a child of Christ. Music is the power of emotion expressed in sound. It can enhance our inner being. It can assist us in more vividly watching it rain. Upon arriving in the Eastern Canadian Mission, I was assigned to labor in Ottawa with, with Elder Gary Heiner. Elder Heiner wasted no time involving me in the work. On the evening of the first day there, we visited a Mrs. Groves. The experience that evening is so vivid that I remember it like it was yesterday. We entered her home. Elder Heiner gave the first discussion and then bore his testimony. He then turned to me and said, Elder Randall, will you please bear your testimony? For just a moment, I wondered if it were not possible to somehow bear my testimony by playing the piano. That would have been so much easier. I had had much more experience in performing in front of people than I had of bearing my testimony, especially to a stranger. There was no piano available, and I found it necessary to verbally share with Mrs. Groves my testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Now, however, I want to take the opportunity, along with my fellow faculty member Robin Hancock, to play for you an expression of testimony. The arrangement was done by Larry Beebe. As you listen, allow yourselves to contemplate the words of the hymn and visualize the resurrected Savior and all of his glory and majesty.
Don't allow yourselves to simply lie back in an easy chair or be like the cow Hubie Brown describes who stands on the hillside blissfully chewing her cud, unaware of the beautiful sunset in the West. Be willing to seek after all that is virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. Be willing to continually fill your minds with that which will draw you closer to the Spirit of Christ and helping you to resist temptation at every turn. Be willing to fill your mind with that which will allow you to more clearly watch it rain. By doing so, you will create then a shield in your mind that will assist you in warding off temptation and drawing closer to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. God lives. This is His Church. We live in a day when there are prophets, prophets who represent the Lord Jesus Christ. May we continually seek to do His will that we might one day enter back into His presence. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.